This is the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. In this episode, I talked to Barbara Hunt. Um, we talked about um, uh, retreats she's done with Sufi, Sufi retreats, uh, some Buddhist meditation, uh, silent meditation retreats, sacred music. Uh, she's a, a musician, singer, songwriter, makes very beautiful uh, music with profound lyrics. Um, the work she's done over the last few years with the teacher Craig Hamilton with his uh, evolutionary enlightenment uh, practice. We talked about nutrition and sh- the work she has, does with uh, Vital Detox in Glastonbury. Um, meditation, five rhythms and dance as a spiritual practice. Uh, we touched on a, uh, the Course of Miracles a little. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the a community of practitioners uh, and evolutionary buddies um, the importance of doing this uh, type of work with with other people uh, and also a little bit about the uh, work she's done with a spiritual teacher called uh, Thomas Hubel I hope you enjoy Barbara Hunt welcome thank you very much and uh, thank you for uh, coming to share your personal story about how you got into transformational practices and how that led to a, an integral type of practice, integrate an integral holistic practice of um, integrating uh, body, heart, mind, spirit, shall we say, uh, into one interconnected practice. Um, and uh, you and I uh, met ar- around this actual style like a lot of the people i've been interviewing of course they're the first people i interview the people i met around this stuff so we've done lots of workshops and stuff and uh, like that but we've also been um good personal friends for um 10 10 or more years um and uh actually met my wife through playing a gig with you where we were both playing together so mm-hmm. there's there's some good personal connections there um so where would you like to start with your story? Um, well, I think it's important to say that I was brought up in the Catholic faith because I think that set a foundation for everything that then followed. And, and particularly Catholicism, there, there's, an, there's a, an inclusion of the miraculous that is, you, you take for granted and you don't really question until you get into your teens and then you start questioning everything about your traditional faith. But um, I I do think that that set a context. My mother was very spiritual and she had a very high, she was what everybody used to call her highly strung and she had a very high sensibility. So she used to love um, music and uh, poetry and literature and what I kind of think of the sort of high vibrational things of life being in the garden she had a very strong faith herself and um, in fact she wanted to be a nun and uh, was a, a, a postulant for a while and then I think just they I think they decided it perhaps wasn't for her and so there's there's a sort of in my mind there's a bit of a, la- a lapse uh, you know a, a, um, an overlap between my mum's story and the story of the sound of music which was 
one of the first movies I ever watched. So I know that's going back a long, long, long way, but it, that seems like a, an important part of my spiritual path. And then I think my first awareness of asking really deep questions about life, there were, there were two things. One was I remember really clearly looking in a mirror and thinking, oh, there's, that's me looking back. There's, there's something, so having some kind of like a awareness of what I had taken for granted wasn't actually what was looking back at me in the mirror. And, um, and then I used, to, I used to do scuba diving with a, a few friends um, when I was in my mid-teens. And there was one, one guy who was a bit older than us. He was the son of, of the scuba diving instructor. And he had the book, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And that seemed to be the very beginning where we were asking really deep questions about what is life? What does it mean to be liberated? What's, you know, what's flying? What's, you know, life, the universe and everything all about. So I think that was really what I would call my first engagement with a, a different kind of spiritual tradition mm. or, you know, spiritual <laughs> inquiry outside of the Catholic church. Yeah. Well, I, um, what I'm about to say might, be completely ignorant and uh, utter rubbish but i'm just going to say anyway um is, there's there's a, there's a there's a, a a turn of phrase where people say something is quite catholic or um to mean that it's a little bit syncretic in that you know um you know bringing together lots of different strands um and and that uh, you know, sort of plays into this idea of, um, you know, what we're, this whole conversation is about is, is weaving together all of these different strands of life and spiritual practice across these broad fundamental domains. Um, yeah, right. And I don't know whether what I've just said is utter bullshit, but. Um, no, it's true. I think that the Catholic, the small C means what you say. And mm. the Catholic with the big C is the, is the faith. But right. I, I think I definitely could see that. I, I know there's sometimes there's criticism of having a smorgasbord relationship with your spirituality of taking a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And, you know, there's a, there's um that can be uh, a, criti a criticism of, of people who can't settle in one faith. So I'm guilty of that. <laughs> well, we get, I mean, that's something we can explore later about whether that really is true that, it's a bad thing to um, <clears throat> have lots of inputs. Yeah. So I've got a fly buzzing around my head. Um, and what's the other thing? Oh yeah, scuba diving. So I've done a bit of scuba diving. And I think there's, there, there's it, it's, it, it's quite, is quite a transformational event. That first time you go underwater and you don't need to go back up to the surface. That, that impacted me in a major way i was absolutely and the world down there is so different um mm -hmm. you know when you watch that the film avatar that that kind of world in the avatar jungle um is very much um that kind of under the sea type of world yeah um, and it's got and the reason why they use it is because it's so magical you know they wanted to create this magical alien planet and it's really like that down there. Um, and I think 
for me it's a bit like a lot of surfers are quite spiritual people you know and um i i i haven't spent that much time around scuba divers but i know for me that experience of a, of a, of a different world was was quite a, a big moment i i remember this a very similar thing when being underwater and having that realization i'm i'm breathing here in this as you say completely different environment and i sh i shouldn't be so there's some kind of sense of you know being allowed access to the this mysterious world of underwaterness and and also there is there is a risk there's an element of risk to it mm. there, there was a, a danger to it because if you you know dive down too quickly or come back up too quickly you know you are risking you know the bends and i mean we weren't going that deep but you know we we, we dived a bit and we did we dived on some wrecks and there were some bits where you had to like dive upside down in order to be able to get through a small passageway and not get your lungs mm. you know connected onto a bit wood or something so mm. yeah. yeah yeah interesting so jonathan livingston seagull which mm. uh i think is one of those i think i was looking up the top i wanted to find a book to read and i and i looked up the 10 most influential spiritual books um and out of the, the list I, I chose the road less traveled mm -hmm. by and Scott Peck. Peck, that's it. Uh, but Jonathan Livingston Seagull was in there. It's not actually a book I've read, but it's uh, it's one of those very influential books. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then, where where do we go from here? Um. So, I I don't really know. I think that the other thing that was significant was my mother's illness, because she became ill with multiple sclerosis by the time I was fifteen. It was starting to have a significant impact on the family. And then by the time I was 18, she was in a wheelchair a lot of the time. I went to university at 18 and at 20, I came back home again to look after her because she was really struggling. She needed, you know, 24 hour care. My brother was at home. He was four and a half years younger than me. My sister had left home by then. And my dad was struggling as well to hold down a full-time job and, you know, take care of my mom. And so I took a year off university to look after my mum and I think there was something as well about the dynamic shifting so rather than me being the child I was the carer and I was feeding my mom and cleaning her and taking her to the loo and back and so there was there was a sense of maybe growing up a bit quicker than than other people who have the luxury of being you know having teen years that are not impacted by the illness of a, a parent um, and around, I think also the other thing, I fell out of love with the Catholic Church, or not love, out of duty with the Catholic Church really early around that, um, the, my late teens, because I, I had a boyfriend and I was interested in exploring my sexuality and the, obviously the Catholic ruling is no sex before marriage because it's wrong. And, um, and I didn't really understand why it was wrong if you cared about each other. I could understand why it was ill-advised as in you might get pregnant and start a family inadvertently, but I didn't understand why it was wrong. And, um, and so I actually even went to see one of the priests at the, at the church, you know, my local church and asked about it. And, and he, all he had really was the rational response. And so I think at that point, I just thought, I don't know, there's, there's some dogma here that just isn't, it's not, doesn't make sense. And it's not being explained to me 
feels doesn't feel um I, I don't know it, even intellectually it didn't feel like it fitted anymore and so when I went to university I stopped going to church and stopped going to mass and um and so I think I ha probably had sort of those years when I was um at university I I was I was involved in lots of theater and I there was there was a film and drama um course I was doing I was doing a b.ed course I was training to be a teacher and didn't know that there was a film and drama course otherwise I probably would have applied for it so everybody thought I was a film and drama student because I hung out with them all and um uh and I was very involved in you know involved in music and and all the other things that I'd been enjoying and I think at that point I was asking deeper questions. I met one woman in particular who was very political and I hadn't had much of a political upbringing. So again, asking big questions of life, but I, I don't think I was really doing very much that was spiritual in, in that way. Um, but I was, I was interested in the bigger questions of life, partly because of the Jonathan Livingston Seagull stuff. And by the time I kind of got to my sort of middle twenties, so, so early to mid twenties, sort of 22, 23, I was, um, I was living in London after after university and writing lots of songs about world peace and um, the, I think the buzzword of the time was about consciousness raising. We have to raise the consciousness of the planet. And I, I was reading books by Shakti Gawain, M. Scott Peck. Um, uh, there, I mean, I think there were there were lots of I was a kind of open and curious, and my brother worked at Mist no, not mysteries um at watkins in london which is one of the big bookshops that had all the esoteric books mm, and then, yeah so I, I, I was a frequent shopper at watkins when i lived in london exactly and, and then yeah. i would go up to mysteries as well which was the other one where they had books on astrology and tarot and interestingly my um again the catholic faith is very anti anything like that any um, astrology or tarot because you might be messing with the devil and all that sort of thing so I was kind of I was a bit subversive about my interest in it but I was interested and um, and then also in my 20s I read a book a Hare Krishna book about vegetarianism and um, my friend who was my flatmate at the time Lizzie and I converted to vegetarianism so probably again sort of quite early adopters in some ways and um, oh actually I've forgotten one thing that's really significant actually Ralph is that at 15 my first job was in a health food shop mm. and my my Saturday job and there was an amazing woman who was the owner so it was definitely her business her husband kind of worked for her and did all the running around but it was her business and she was incredibly knowledgeable about well-being and food and things like people you know people would come in and almost use her like a sort of a pharmacist a health food equivalent of a pharmacist and say oh my child's got eczema what can you recommend and she'd say or oh, keep them off dairy or try them on goat's milk and so we were we were really ahead of the curve and again in in that in in that in those days way back in you know whenever it was um we were quite ahead of the, the curve in, in um healthy eating because she, you know she was she, i mean i was really interested in everything she was one of the first people who let me know about additives in food and we look we had a whole list of all the e numbers and the different um the different symptoms that were exposed if you had different e numbers and and so she was and she said she used to go home with a headache on a saturday because i used to ask her so many questions because mm -hmm. i was so interested so that was that was a significant thing 
So should I stop for a minute so you can respond? <laughs> um, right. Well, a, a couple of things uh, occur to me. One is reading books is quite often the, the kind of entry point for people into this stuff. It's like, that's how you get exposed to new ideas. And I mean, we're, you're talking about pr the pre-internet era. Yes. I mean, I know the internet has been around for many years, but it wasn't really user friendly till say 2000 or something or 1995. So now, you know, you, you, you'd be, you know, people still read books and all of that sort of thing, but you might encounter a podcast or a, a Facebook page or, some follow someone on twitter and they start opening your mind so that's quite often the access point into this stuff and it it was for me too i mean i i think reading about tibetan buddhism was some of the most it was the kind of first thing for me and it was like it was an encounter with ideas and a culture and a way of being and spiritual practices and things which i'd never been exposed to in my life so you know i think that some some people think reading books is you know not spiritual or um uh or uh, you know it's all about getting out of your mind and uh and, and that kind of thing and uh, so i mean I, I think reading books is is a is a very good way of expanding your mind i mean it's it, it seems stupid to even say that out loud but <laughs> there is a bit of a culture of um you know oh reading books uh, so you don't get anything good out of that but i, I don't believe that um and um the the health food scene um is kind of baked into this alternative living this a wider context of um alternative health alternative medicine alternative spirituality um you know all of that kind of thing so it's like a, again there's all these doorways in to this stuff and some of them you might not one might not necessarily think that might be a doorway into spiritual practice working in a health food shop but you know the breadcrumbs lead from there for sure yeah yeah um, for sure. yeah so those were just my thoughts on what you've said so far yeah so you you're at university hanging out with the theater and uh drama people so what happens now film and drama yeah um and so that so then it was really leaving university and living in london trying to be a singer songwriter um because i by then i decided um that i didn't want to be a school teacher um in my family circumstances my dad's job changed so he moved up to manchester with my mum and my brother and i went back to university and finished a year and just did a straight english degree and um and then when i left university I, 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 by then I still wanted to be a singer songwriter. I also wanted to change the world, but I thought I was going to change the world through music. And, um, and so I, I think I did have very, um, enormous aspirations and, uh, and, and I, I'm, I'm trying to relate it as well to spiral dynamics as well, but I can, I can almost track where I was at, you know, with the, with the different levels of development, but I don't know whether that's probably a bit too heady. Well, yeah, I'm not assuming that, that everybody listening to this would know what spirodynamics is. It has come up in some other yeah. conversations. Yeah. But just, um, but just seeing the yeah. evolutionary process as we, as we grow through our own lives, mm. I can, I can definitely see different places in my life where there were, there were transitions. And yeah. I think 
so being a, a failed singer songwriter, which I, I think I am and continue to be so far, um, as in it's never been my primary source of income. Um, but it's always been a joy and, a, and, and something that I still, I still aspire to, to doing and, and still engage in, obviously. Um, my, my most recent um, song was a song for international peace. So I don't really, it's almost like the themes in my life haven't changed very much. Hmm. Well, probably, uh, well, I, I mean, I, I know your music quite well. And um, I mean, I consider it psychoactive um, devotional music that's uh you know <clears throat> it's got very deep lyrics and beautiful melodies oh thank you um so it's it's i mean i would classify it as transformational devotional music really so i mean it's i think it's got quite a um spiritual theme to a lot of it and, and perhaps that wasn't present in these this earlier music making you were so yeah well actually funnily enough i think it was right. um one, one of my songs um that i wrote when i was about 20 probably 23 or 24 was called angels exist which was based on some of my esoteric reading and, okay. and, and the lyrics are basically saying you know we're not alone we're part of all that is you know somewhere out there or somewhere in there we are angels we're more than our minds more than just flesh and blood older than time brighter than the stars we are more than we think we think we are. We are more than we know we know we are. We are angels. And so, you know, it was like that I, I was awake to that and wanting to express that kind of thing in my right. lyrics. And, and mm. some of them were, you know, it, it's almost like the, the thing that I really like is that although I can see how my thinking has evolved, that the heart of the songs are still true now. Mm. And um that i just think i've refined my understanding more in the right. in the intervening intervening years but yeah and and, I, and we, even when i was writing about relationships i was trying to write about the you know the intimate beloved but also the the divine beloved just you, mm. like you were saying earlier about one of the things we could talk about is the relationship with the divine, the devotional relationship. And mm. that, that was also there. I was always trying to write. So I really thank you for the feedback about. The yeah. Oh, well, I didn't want anyone listening to this to, to think, Oh, well, you know, her, her music's just a load of crap and I won't even bother checking it out. Cause it is, it is very high quality and awesome um, yeah, and very well received by many people. So <laughs> but yeah, you're you're a to, the to, a tortured artist you know yeah so. nice, <clears throat> yeah um yeah okay so then where do we go so um so m lots of music um lots of failed relationships and eventually i get to um probably the next significant change um was doing a personal development workshop so i was still reading tons you know you know like everything that i could get my hands on that was in that realm and um uh a return to love marianne williamson you know all that kind of like all of the the, the new agey stuff that was coming across um my path i would i would read um i was i can't remember what, what the dates are but people like um Lyle Watson wrote a book called Omnivore and um, Peter Russell 
the global brain awakens that was kind of pre um pre in internet he was just at the very beginning of how he could see the the global brain connecting up all the neural pathways you know via our individual little um computers connecting up uh so i was i was still really very much engaged in that and i took a program my friend penny told me that um uh, that there was a, a personal development program that you could do where you would do as much growing in one weekend as you would in three years of normal life. And I was like, yeah, great. Anything for a shortcut. And so I signed myself up with some trepidation because he was, these were American people who'd come over and I was like, is it a cult? Not quite sure. And, um, at the time it was called the life training, but now it's called more to life. Um, dot org and they still run programs and everything and um so i went along and I, at the same time as taking the weekend i was reading a book called combating cult mind control because i didn't want to have my mind controlled so um and i took the training and that really did that really did change my life i felt like the next the morning after the weekend i was i was looking out over the the rooftops where i live just thinking everything is different because something in me has, has shifted, something's different inside me. And, um, and, in, and in some ways it was, uh, um, it was an experiential learning and they, and they also taught you tools. So one, one process was how to clear your mind talk. So all the inner critic, it was a process of how to, how to approach that. Another one was a particular form of a forgiveness process. And then another one was a self-forgiveness process in front of a mirror, which was very powerful. And, um, and so I, I then was very enthusiastic about that whole program for a long time. And I, um, I was an advocate and maybe even a, a zealot, I would say for that program. And uh, I went on the teams and at the time, because again, it was pre-internet and people had things where they were free at weekends, you could give up a weekend. And so you would um, be on team and play on team and serve the people who were taking the training. And so the, the training that often there would be like 90 or so people taking the training, but 80 or 90 people on the team people voluntarily giving up their entire weekend to be there to do the training again. So you see it for yourself, but from a position of service. And I learned so much about being of service, even things like setting a room so that it's impeccable. So that every, that when we used to set the rooms, all the pen lids faced exactly the same way. And when you walked in the room, because everything had been put down consciously, there was, a, it was almost like a resonance to it. There was a, a sense of we created sacred space, although we didn't talk about it in that language. It was very, um, it, it was, it was about being personally successful. There was quite a lot of work on, you know, your, your eye, which we would recognize as, as probably a bit ego based now. Um, but also a sense of life talking to you. So rather than using the word God, um, they would talk about life talking to you and you were talking to life in this dialogue. And, and the two guys who were the founders, Brad Brown and Roy Whitten, were both Episcopal priests. So it kind of had a, uh, there was a consciousness that it was more than just about your own personal development. And also Brad Brown, I know for sure, was a student of The Course in Miracles. And so he was, he was almost, his creation was informed by, he, he knew um, Victor, not Victor Frankl, um, I can't remember one of the other 
great teachers but so so he was very well informed and he he ran he was a, a um, you know family psychotherapist and in the states so there was there was that that was a very rich um community so that was probably at the point where i was joining other people who were also wanting to live life in a different way with more meaning and um uh more consciousness mm. Well, that, that brings up something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, the, the community, being part of a community of people who, are, who have this higher vision and how important it is to be in some kind of community, even if it, I mean, it can be a tiny community. Mm-hmm. It could just, um, you know, it could be four people or something, or, or it could be, something that's you know thousands i mean i think there's probably an optimum size i mean i'm th- wondering about the you know this work done around our, our ancient past and the sort of tribal groups that we used to live in you know somewhere between 30 and 150 people or something you know that kind of range yeah um i mean what <clears throat> some of these organizations are massive and there's sort of thousands and thousands of people and and it once it gets to that size it's a little bit impersonal particularly in relation to the teachers you know you don't you're very unlikely to have a personal relationship with um a teacher who has 20,000 students you know it's um with i'm sure everybody feels they've got their own personal relationship with the teacher and that they're special (laughs) you know um um and that that's a theme that's run through you know, even the work you do now with you've done a lot with Craig Hamilton um, and uh, you know, that that's been quite a collective practice has been quite a theme for you. And it's something I feel is very important. I mean, I, I, I'm by natural inclination, I'm a bit of a loner. I like to do things on my own, but uh, I really realize the limitations of always doing it that way because um, you know, if you combine your heart and mind and body with other people, something special happens that's bigger than what you can do on your own. I mean, yeah. it's just, um, you know, perhaps is there anything you want to talk about that that makes you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree that, that there's something really wonderful about belonging to a community of people who have the same value set as you and um being being a team member when you when you're on team for the mortal life program you would sign up to a some to team agreements about being and the kind of the, the overarching intention was to be what what was called in mastery of self in service which which i which i really liked and there was part of me that really resonated with that and and you were expected whenever you were on team that that would be also your own you would be evolving as much as you were in service to the participants who were taking the training and that was that was the culture that we were all in and there was also high accountability you were invited to have support partners so that you would be processing with other people and although the the processes work on their own but you were also you were invited to work together and then also the teams there were different um 
so there was the, 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 there was a training supervisor, there were three assistant training supervisors, then there were team captains for each of the different roles, and then there were people in small teams. So that, so again, you were encouraged to um, to be part of a smaller part of a bigger team and part of the whole. And and actually, I was lucky enough to to meet and know both Brad Brown and Roy Whitten um, personally because I they were coming over from um, America at the time to to take the trainings. And so you you um, they were you didn't obviously have very deep relationships, but you did have you, you did have some relationship, which was great. Mm. Um, that that helped. And um, <clears throat> and 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 because there were things that you could do, so you could be an, a team member then you could become a team captain which had more responsibility than an assistant training supervisor which had more responsibility and then a, a training supervisor which had even more responsibility and then um, I ended up being in a role of leadership support so I was responsible for training and helping to support the leaders and and that was and, and I also they had some mentorship trainings where you could train to be a mentor and teach some of the sister programs um, and so I learned how to teach a self-esteem course and one on purpose. And, and also around that time when I was very involved, I also um, became pregnant um, with my son and then had my son. And so I actually taught my first course, um, my first self-esteem enhancement course when he was 10 weeks old. I taught mm -hmm. that from my home with my friend, Sophie Savage. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, so it was, so it was, it was really, it, it was a very intense time and a, a time of great change and evolution in me. But what happened was, was that I was really interested in keeping evolving. And that meant that I evolved past where my partner was willing to evolve. And so that actually ended our relationship. And he, he would even say things, you know, don't give me that, you know, claptrap as I would be zealotly trying to influence him. So was it, was, was he part of the mortal life thing? He was, but only through me, really. I think his okay. interest was he got involved a little bit because I was so enthusiastic. Mm. But it yeah. wasn't that I think actually um, there, there were personal reasons why it, it wasn't it wasn't as um, effective for him as it was for me. Yeah. yeah. So so there's more to life than more to life. Yes, there is. Um, well, what what were what were some of the the limitations you felt that that um, made you want to move uh, beyond yeah. mortal life. Well, that, funnily enough, there there were two things in particular. One was that there seemed to be no awareness of the physical body and nutrition and well-being, and I mean there obviously was some awareness, but there but there, but there didn't seem to be um, a um, an honouring of the of the physical, in the same way. Do you think so that's there, there, a, that's a Christian thing? Maybe, maybe, but you know, like denial of the body, and you know, we don't talk the about sin, it. the sins of the flesh. Of the flesh, exactly. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't, yeah. I don't know. And but I was, I was just very critical of what I saw um, was the behaviour of some of the people who were in that program. Um, mm. And, and also, I think I was also seeing the limitations of even some of the processes. And because I also discovered around that time, so probably like early 90s or so, um, uh, Brandon Bay's The Journey. 
And I really, really resonated with the journey process because um, it was an imaginal, like a, a, a Jungian um, active imagination exercise. And when you do one of the processes in the mortal life program, you kind of like work down in your mind, you kind of get to a core belief, like I'm not good enough, or in my case, I'm evil. Um, that was a bit of a revelation, but then a good Catholic should have that belief. And, um, but then it was like, well, then what do you do? I mean, you can verify and you can rationalize it, but there's something about the belief that seems to stay. And that was what I was interested in. And, um, so in the journey process, you drop beneath that and you kind of drop into the light. And, um, and so I, I was then wanting to bring in other material and because the mortal life program had a particular teaching offering, I was just, I was, I felt compromised by my integrity. Like I can't teach this. If I, if I know more and I want to add more, I can't. And so I didn't, I didn't apply to become a trainer. I didn't go forward in that with the, in the program in the same ways I, I might've done if I hadn't still been kind of like curiously looking, well, what else, what else is, you know, what else is possible? What's mm. next? You did, uh, I was due to have a root canal procedure in, in the dentist years ago and you guided me through one of these processes and um, <clears throat> um, there was a whole thing. I was, there was a, shark and things like that came up and um and i went to the dentist the next day and he said oh yeah tooth's all right um you don't need the the procedure and and i did i mean i i didn't experience any pain you know the next day and 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 you know thereafter so um you know it, i i've been through that process and it, it did that for me so yeah yeah yeah. Well, actually, funnily enough, I think the one I took you through was my synthesis. So I think you were yeah. Catholic. I, I'm synthesizing all the time. So mm. I synthesized the journey process with Ken Wilber's three, two, one process mm -hmm. and a bit of more to life language. So it's I, I, I mean, I am a, um, a synthesizer. Yeah. Cool. Well, it, it was it was very effective. Good. Good. I'm um, really delighted. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you, you're just leaving more to life then? Yeah, so I, I think by then, the other thing that had come in was silent retreats with the Sufis. So I had early on, so when I was still with um, my son's father, we did some, a Buddhist retreat together silent retreat and went away and did the buddhist retreat and i you know i liked it i loved i loved being in silence and i continue to love being in silence it's one of my favorite things to do to actually do a silent retreat there's there's nothing like it and holding silence is i think one of probably life's most ill under misunderstood or underused practices because it's so powerful if you can hold your silence. And I think a lot of people find it hard to hold silence. They feel deeply uncomfortable, means loads of stuff comes up. And, um, and you know, it, the, the longer you can hold it, the more powerful it is. It's almost like, the, like holding your breath, the tension kind of like builds and it's, it's extraordinary. Um, so I, I went away on a Buddhist retreat and then a few years after that, I would go regularly so every easter pretty much on a sufi retreat for a five-day silent retreat 
um, which was where I kind of fell in love with the whole Sufi approach. And, and because um, the teacher of, of the, there, were, there was a, an English teacher, Nigel Hamilton, Nigel Wally Hamilton, who um, runs the CCPE, which is a psychotherapeutic training in London, but his, like the, the Sufi master was Pierre Villiat Inyat Khan. I don't mind mispronounce that, but, um, but he was this, he was really this beautiful man with a, a beard. So he kind of like satisfied my sort of Catholic kind of old man with a beard kind of version. Uh, um, mm. But he was so wise and so funny. And also the, the, the Sufis have, um, the, in the, again, in this tradition, Hazrat Ilniat Khan was a musician and he gave up being a musician in order to be, to bring Sufism to the West. And so there's a very strong love of music and use of music in, in this particular tradition. And I remember really clearly watching Pierre Villayat listening to music. He was listening to some Bach and his face was in rapture. It was just like, he was like, almost like everything in his body it was almost like you could see him moving and like the instruments moving inside him as, as he was listening to it. It was really beautiful. And, um, and there was something very playful about this, the Sufis, but also very comprehensive because it's the mystical side. So, or um, tr tr tradition. And so it has the greatest embrace of all other traditions. And so I remember really on, on one retreat, Nigel did the Stations of the Cross, which is a Christian tradition, Catholic tradition, um, where you go through the story of Christ's crucifixion stage by stage by stage and he was making it relevant to the the the, the bigger picture the bigger um devotional picture which was amazing so i i, I kind of felt like i could embrace my catholicism but have this devotional aspect and there's there's one practice called a bowing zikr where you actually bow to the ground and um and that made me cry there was something so moving about that actually being bowing you know, properly, m way more than taking the knee or genuflecting, as we have called it for many millions of years mm. in the Catholic tradition. Yeah. But there's um, some of the most famous uh, Sufi teachers uh, in history have had students, have had Christian students, um, uh, Islamic students, um, uh, Jewish students, and, you know, they've had students from different uh, religious traditions and that's not been a problem for them yeah um, exactly. which, which is which is really i think brilliant um yeah, yeah i do too and and there really is that embrace you know toward the one there's no the sort of like this path that path it's just you know it's the perfection love harmony and beauty is is universal mm. and and also just the the sufi masters the sufi poets like Rumi and Hafiz and you mm. know that there you know that I think that was another there were the other they were other things that I was reading actually and I think the the poetry side of things David White and Mary Oliver and and the sort of spiritual poets they also you know during that time the mortal during the mortal lifetime there was a lot of ex exchanging of um poetry and uh and that side that the the creative um poetic side of, of, of yeah poetry. yeah well, I, most of my practice um, over the years has, has been in a Buddhist context. But after doing that for a long time, I felt like my 
devotional um kind of burning love side of things was not being met by the buddhist practice and um you know, some people have said that uh the closest thing you get to well i, I don't know it, it, but, but buddhism's kind of they, they they use the term compassion a lot and uh i mean i don't know whether that's a uh an a, a to do with translation you know but it, Buddhist text being translated into English and com compassion was the word that just got landed on and then they were used. But it's, there's something rather bland about compassion, you know, c compared to the type of love that Rumi and Hafez talk about or Kabir. Um, and um, so I felt that uh, a very strong urge to reconnect with that. And I think partly it's to do with reconnecting with my upbringing as a as a christian that you know the the abrahamic religions do that that but you know the heart jesus with his heart on actually out of his chest or opening up his chest with his heart there yeah. all of that stuff really speaks to me and i and i and i love that stuff and it but it, it doesn't really feature so much in the buddhist thing which is quite cool and philosophical and uh, to do with you know lots of meditation practice um yeah. So, and I, I think the the, the Sufi stuff was what got me back into being interested in Christianity, you know, my own roots in that and finding the mystical Christian stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I've, I've had the same kind of journey, sort of like a rejection of the, the Christian tradition and Christ and, you know, Jesus isn't that groovy because he wears sandals, you know, and then, and then getting back to uh, the same same sense as you where there's a an honoring of the mystical christianity which is just has such profound devotional love and love for humanity um and and also i do think that jesus is the master teacher particularly about forgiveness which is you know is one of my favorite subjects mm, yeah. so um you know so it, and, and that whole thing you know if we could if we could just do those two things you know love your neighbor as yourself and you know, forgive your brother 70 times seven, we would be living in a different world. Mm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, big shout out to Sufism. Um, yeah, right. you know, another person who was very influential for me was Idris Shah, the Afghan Sufi. Uh, you know, I read all of his books and um, got really into his stuff. Um, although he, he tended to be a little bit more on the philosophical side than um, someone like Hafez. Uh, but I, I, they just before we get off the Sufi thing, um, they have this, uh, the Mullah Nasruddin, you know, it's this kind of like oh, yeah. co comic character. <laughs> and they have this whole tradition around, um, you know, this kind of, he's a bit like a kind of Don Quixote, ridiculous character who bumbles through life, but doing really extraordinary things and giving, unintentionally giving really profound lessons in, in life and spirituality. And, and that, and that, you know, that what a wonderful thing to have that in it, in it, as a, an important part of a spiritual tradition to have that in there because that's not I haven't really come across that. I mean, Zen stories are a little bit like that, but they don't quite have this really dedicated tradition like like they do with the Mullah Nasruddin stuff. Yeah, it's funny actually. One of my one of my criteria when looking for spiritual teachers who to you know engage with and who to not 
sense of humor has been such a critical part mm. of if they've got a bit of a sense of humor, then it's, you know, I'm, I'm more interested. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things that, t- that turned me off about the Christianity of my upbringing was there was no sense of humor in it at all. And, you know, um, I knew that there was a cosmic joke yeah. uh, and I, they were not addressing that. So, you know, and the, the Buddhism was pretty good on that, you know, and particularly Zen. Um, but I, I think the Sufis have really taken that to, you know, a beautiful place. Yeah, I agree. So um, silent retreats. Um, a lot of people I've talked to have done silent retreats and um they talk about the site. Well, I mean, I've done a 10 day silent retreat and the silence was extremely powerful. And um, one thing I've that through doing many, many years of meditation practice um, found the part of myself that is always silent uh, in all situations. And that that's the kind of the ultimate silence, the peace that surpasses all understanding. And um, you know, one term I use for it is formless awareness. I mean, it's, Again, it's a rather bland term for something really incredible, you know, ultimately mysterious, but is always silent. Um, and that, that's the actual context for every moment of our lives, um, no matter how hectic things are going on. And I think the silent retreats kind of teach, show you how to appreciate that silence within yourself and that it's actually an important thing. So it, our kind of modern culture, it just pays no attention to awareness as the context within which everything arises and, um, you know, completely misses out on this enormous resource of silence and peace that is at the very heart of our identity. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's, and, and also it teaches other things as well. There was something about being conscious to not accidentally say things when, you know, stubbing your foot on a tree to not go, ah, or whatever, mm. and or bursting out into song, which I have done on both of those things on silent retreats, accidentally, oh, it's supposed to be in silence, um, or, or, you know, or really intending to keep your silence, and then somebody asks you a question, and you want to get a pen out and write the answer, and, mm. or they whisper or something, you know, um, but, but, the, but the other thing about it is noticing when you break silence, I remember really clearly sitting at the lunch table thinking, I don't think there's anything I can possibly add to this moment in terms of words that's going to add (laughs) just nothing to say. And also noticing my judgments when I did hear people's voices. Oh, you're a Scot. Ah, and then just, you know, just hearing my, my own judgments about like, calibrating my judgment on the person who I hadn't judged in that way. Not that I judge Scots people, but mm. you know, just interesting to see when people use their voices and, or when, who, who you meet It's a bit like dance when you meet somebody on the dance floor and you're just dancing with them and you don't know anything about their story. You don't know who they are. You're just finding them showing up in that moment, which can be very profound. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know whether this fits in chronologically, but, um, you and I have both done five rhythms dancing. Um, you've done a, a, a lot more than I have. Um, but what <clears throat> I was sort of a typical English boy that never danced, 
you know, felt to- totally awkward with it. And Five Rhythms was a massive liberation for me because uh, the first time I went was actually a date with um, my wife when we uh, first met. And uh, I was terrified because we were going to go and do two hours of dancing. And I, I felt it was the worst thing. It was like of all the things I could be doing, it was the thing I felt the most uncomfortable with. Walked into this uh, town hall in uh, Glastonbury and there were just people doing the most crazy stuff. And I thought, OK, this is all right. Anything goes here. And, and, I, and I had that thing where I was dancing with occasionally they say, right, you know, find someone in the room you know dance with each other i remember dancing with this uh woman who i i, I never spoke to her the whole time uh never exchanged a, a single word but we danced for i don't know maybe 20 minutes you know t- together looking each other in the eye and you know mirroring our movements sometimes and it was it was a really amazing thing for me it was um a, quite a rite of passage yes uh, for me to do that as, as someone who's not a dancer and you, you've done five rhythms retreat, what, you know, where you've done a whole day of dancing. Yes. Do I remember correctly? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, perhaps we yeah. could talk about that. Whole whole weekends. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it is. It is. It, I mean, it's such an amazing practice. And and Gabrielle Roth, her little caption is "Sweat your prayers." So it's it's a spiritual practice. The 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 map of the five rhythms are you can you can imagine the five rhythms go through everything they go through your you know your life you know she can she she says that you should like wake up in the morning and and decide what rhythm you're in when you've woken up what what rhythm are you in are you in flowing or chaos or staccato or lyrical stillness and 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 for me i i have been a dancer all my life i was like a tiny weeny little ballerina and then gymnast and then I, i've always danced all my life and i i love it and but the, but i like the five rhythms because there's nothing to learn you don't have to do any steps there's no restriction and it feels like your body wants to express things and 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 as you said you can do anything and i think to begin with people are self-conscious they think oh god you know i can't you know, everyone's going to be looking at me, but the truth is everyone's so self-involved that they're all thinking about their own dance and, and, and you just do your own thing and you do end up doing some really weird things. And you just think, you know, why am I doing this, you know, endlessly? Because that's, if you give yourself permission, that's what you want to do. And uh, it's, it's an amazing practice. And, and the thing I like about the wave is you feel like you've been on a journey and you've, you know, there's a, there's sort of a, a rise and a fall to it. And the, 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 the person who's leading the dance, the, the teacher um, is leading you with the music. And, and, and for me, that the other thing that I've really enjoyed, especially in probably more in recent years, is really listening to how the different, the complexity of the music can, can really command how you dance. If there are like off, off rhythms or there's something, there's another like melody going on that's got a different, rhythm to it and like you your body can pick up the different strands and dance maybe it just dances with the bass drum or maybe it dances with the guitar or maybe with the whatever it is and that that seems it's like you can get to a point where you feel like you're being danced and and the the deeper longer like the the day long or the weekend long um dance practices you can you can go through more of an emotional sensation you know you 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 can i remember one 
one retreat where we were doing um so you take one of the rhythms and then you dance anger in chaos or anger in stillness or anger in and you go through the different emotions in the different rhythms which was really fascinating mm -hmm. and yeah very very profound and i also remember and and there is a particular five rhythms teacher i think it's andrew holmes who works with a a, a family constellation practitioner and they, they work together, so using dance and family constellations. And, um, but I remember being invited into a family unit. There was like four of us, and they, he, it wasn't him in this particular context, but a different teacher, saying, this is your family. And then you have to dance as a family. And it, just all the kind of old unresolved dramas and stuff comes out. Mm. But very good, very powerful. And, and also not knowing anyone. Like you said, you dance with somebody, it's very pure because you're just connecting with them in the moment, but you don't know anything about their story. And I would make a point of going home without connecting with people because I just wanted to have the dance as a, like a sacred space and not overlay any of my prejudices or um, mm. expectations. Yeah. There's, um, there's a, a kind of a, a feeling out there in um, the culture that, dance and music are kind of slightly frivolous activities and they're not serious spiritual practices. Mm. Um, and, uh, but it, 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 music and dance have been part of all the religions. Um, and even the, you know, going back before you had these religions after the axial age, all the um, shamanic tribal um rites of passage dancing and um all of that kind of thing there's and, and, the, and the music is always part of it too you know in in africa you've got this uh, sort of spirit possession ceremonies where musicians play all night you know and, and um people go into trances and it's uh it's it's deep stuff music and dance and um I think what done well so I, I've done a lot of psychedelics in my life and when you combine psychedelics with powerful music um amazing things happen I mean it's like it's the music is the um almost like the the, the navigator or the or the best you get on some kind of journey and it, and it takes you through moods and, 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 and deep in all the different sounds and there, you know, there might be a, a, a kind of a beautiful bit and then a slightly disturbing bit and uh, a happy, but a sad bit. And it takes you through this whole journey in and out of these things. And it, one of the things that's really good with uh, using music with psychedelics is it stops you getting stuck in some of these eddies so if you're you know you might get stuck in a very sad or negative moment um and, it, and if, if you're not listening to music you can end up you know that it can turn into what people call a bad trip you know but if you're listening to music it might take you into an intense place but then some then some angelic uh voice comes in singing something beautiful and it just lifts you out and it's like oh thank you you know um 
in, in ayahuasca ceremonies, music's a very, very big part of it. And it's sort of specifically designed to take you through um, the different stages of the journey. You know, to begin with, they sort of start with powerful drums and doom, 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 doom. And uh, it kind of just like perturbs everybody's consciousness and, and, and disturbs everything. And it's like shaking the the trees and sees what comes comes out and then you kind of like can go through some very soft bits with mellow beautiful acoustic and it it takes you for this whole range so that you can work on all of these different levels you're not just putting on um you know beethoven or something and just doing beethoven or maybe a certain beethoven is a bit rich but like you know some you're not putting on um some hardcore techno music just the whole time, just the same mm-hmm. thing. And that's a kind of a mono mood. Yeah. Just, it can take you through this. And, and I think really paying attention to music, you, know, you don't have to be on psychedelics, but I mean, one of the things I love is putting on music, uh, on headphones, closing my eyes and just getting lost in the soundscape. And it takes me to places. And I think a lot of it, I kind of feel it in my heart really music seems to work there um and um I, I i'm also like you a musician and when i play music i'm kind of concentrating so hard on what i'm doing i'm not really thinking you know unless it's a song i've played a million times and i'm playing a gig in front of lots of people then you you know sometimes you do start to think and then that's like the beginning of all awfulness as a performer <laughs> um, but it, it kind of you learn how to just give yourself over to an activity without any conceptual overlay you know it kind of it it bypasses all of that it comes straight from the heart um, yeah yeah in fact i was listening to something the other day that just said that we have music before we have language there's, yeah, there's, sure. the, there's the there's the there's the the tones like oh the baby will make mm. noises and then the parent echoes it back and then translates it into whatever language they're speaking mm. yeah. yeah um perhaps we could talk a bit you know while we're on the 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 physical stuff body um you know because again it's another thing that's very common is spiritual traditions and and spiritual people to think their body is somehow you know not the divine or you know um i, I like to the way i i sort of simplify things into everything that exists for me is the goddess mother nature and um my body is the goddess you know a, a goddess and i am a goddess you know in that sense and i you know i love to fit you know to feel my but there's there, there's nothing um but it took me a while to get to that place you know i kind of i think maybe grown up with this with a christian background where this kind of negation of the body and i also got quite into some of the the um the indian spiritual practices and traditions which again it's a sort of bit more ascetic mortification of the flesh type thing you know um and uh I'm not into that at all now. Um, I mean, it was useful at the time for kind of getting me beyond my body, mm. but now I'm very much into being inside my body. Um, and um, 
what what I eat is very much part of that. So you've done a lot of stuff around nutrition and you you work for something called Vital Detox. Um, so perhaps you could talk about your journey with food. Um, sure. Um, I, I think... I, I think I'm similar to you in some ways about the negation of the body and and um, and not really in, it, it being in awe of it, which is, I think, what we should be. I, if just even the miraculousness, the more I read about neuroscience or I watch Jill Bolte-Taylor's My Stroke of Insight TED Talk. I don't know if you've seen that. I have. Extraordinary. You don't need to have a stroke to have, you just take some magic mushrooms. You know, that's the easy way. That's the easy way to have what she had. <laughs> that's what I think when I see it. Yeah. yeah. People, but, people but, probably watch that and think, oh, I'd love to have a stroke and have that experience. The yeah. same way is to have some magic, magic mushrooms. <laughs> but but just, just the sort of the, how she recovered is extraordinary. You know, the things that she had to learn again, like to put your socks on before your shoes and, when her mother was teaching her about a jigsaw puzzle said, you know, find all the pieces with edges. And she was like, what's an edge? And you know, the con the conceptual things. And, and I think there's something about, we utterly take for granted how miraculous the body is. The fact that when you, you know, two cells unite and then they start dividing in the womb and, and then some of them grow into a liver and some of them grow into lungs and some of them grow into a spine, but they, they know how long to do that for and when to stop. And you don't like end up with like big fat liver and like a weedy. I mean, it's utterly miraculous. And so any other behavior towards your body other than that, it is the most miraculous gift that I have been given is, um, is missing at the mark really. And, but, but like, you know, like you, uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, been in different kinds of relationships with my body and not taking the best care of it at times. And I was a smoker for a long time. And, um, and you know, I don't really know anyone who has a perfect diet, um, but my having learned what I learned age 15 at the health food shop and then being staying interested in food and nutrition all through that time and experimenting with the different food fads, you know, the different, you know, like high well, for a long time it was low fat and all that sort of thing and now it's like high fat and low carb and then it's keto and then it's um uh, intermittent fasting all the different things and i think what i've learned more after i've been working with vital detox for seven years and there's a, a really wonderful nutritionist there fiona milligan who um has a very comprehensive re relationship and um comprehensive training with with nutrition and uh, she's a master herbalist which means she specializes in detoxification and she says that the the, the body never lies it that it's the, it's the the marker of truth is the way she puts it and 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 what i think i've i've learned i mean i learned about nutrition but also about the the body in the role of holding tra trauma so when we do the emotional work with clients which is what i what i do on the retreat as well as you know generally taking care and doing the juices and all that sort of thing is um respecting how the body you know when we were working with your tooth there's, there's a there's a there's a um an awareness of the physiology as as well as you know what's going on mentally emotionally and and spiritually there's a, a physiological 
element to it as well. And there's there's loads of new research, all the all the um, this this um, somatic experiencing, Peter Levine's work, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, the body um, keeps the score, uh, Gabor Mate, um, when the body says no. They're, they're all of this new information about how the relationship between with nutrition and the body and trauma and then later on um diseases that happen um in later life so um yeah so i've i've, I've been kind of i and i and i feel still like i'm in a journey of discovering what actually works for me because my belief is that there's no one size fits all in terms of diet I think mm. there's some people who really thrive on some things. Some people need a lot of protein. Other people need more carby diets. Some people are great being vegan. Other people, they really shouldn't be because it, it, they're not getting enough nutrition. And, and also we're learning more and more about the microbiome being part of, um, it's, I mean, the importance of soil health and your gut health and your immune system, you know, all of that's new, relatively new information. But, but I think, I think the basics of, of healthy eating or you know is it a thing you know like if it's a carrot you don't need to read the ingredients or find out where you know it's like it's a carrot and so therefore you know hopefully if it's locally and organically produced you're, you're doing all right and to and to choose simple foods and and i think the other thing I and mean, when I, I i did this to a certain extent when i was raising my son was to go back to what historically and biologically evolutionarily would we have done and i was very much an advocate of the i read the continuum concept uh, by jean leadloff uh, which is about holding and carrying your child and it's ideally in a, um, a community setting rather than as a, you know a small family setting but but the principles were really sound and to to build good attachment so the child is carried and and to me it was like you would never put your child in a part of the cave and then go off and have some me time. You know, you, you would have the child with you or it'd be with an auntie or assisting, or, you know, it would be included. It wouldn't be the focus of your attention because you would be doing what you needed to do, which is what Jean Leadloff calls um, child, um, so it's, it's, it's child centered, but, but not, um, so it's adult centered, but the child is included. And, mm. uh, and, I, and I really took that on board. So it's the same with nutrition. It's like, it's not rocket science. You know, we, we are biological creatures that have grown in our environments. And so we're much better off eating and consuming the things that are close to us and that are in season and that, are, that we're able to easily digest. So as in not highly processed foods. Yeah. Um... Well, so I've been on quite a journey with nutrition over the years, you know, so tried all the different things, well, vegan, fasting, juicing, raw, um, high protein, um, high carbs. Uh, I mean, also, I mean, food combining. I mean, just, you know, it's, I think it's oh, yeah. worth, it's worth doing all of that stuff to find what works for you. And then quite often the conclusion you come to is that, well, this works for me. And I, and I, like you, I really don't believe there's a diet that is universally, universally applicable. And that's very common with veganism. People think that everybody should be vegan. And uh, I think, you know, some, some people, it can be really good to be vegan. Um, but 
other people not uh, and and i think different groups of people have um evolved in different climates and and evolved very different body types and shapes and things that are suited to particular types of food you know and, and uh there are there are people that don't eat you know we think that you have to eat vegetables and fruit to be healthy but there are there are people like the maasai uh living in in uh, kenya in the desert that they basically live off meat blood and milk you know uh, and um and there are also people you know who just do a complete carnivore diet where they eat nothing but meat um yeah. and they are okay too and it's um i mean i i eat a lot of vegetables a lot of fruit um i'm a lacto ovo vegetarian and that's what i've landed on but like but like you i i eat whole foods it, so you know, it, a, a, a whole food is something that is it doesn't have loads of ingredients on it you know it's like if there's more than two ingredients or three ingredients on whatever the the if the label is i i don't really want to eat that you know yeah. it's um and uh but i think there's nutrition is a minefield if if someone wants to try and find out how to eat a healthy diet they will be bombarded by opposing views and it's certainly it i for me it was torture for years to think you know i'd be like oh okay this is the truth that's the truth that's the truth that's the truth that's the way and there is a way to integrate all of those and say well okay all of these people have got some of the they've got part of the truth here mm -hmm. all these diets they're promoting and um perhaps there's my own unique combination of these which is the way to go which is it kind of related a bit to what the types of spiritual practice thing we're, we're doing that there's no cookie cutter one size fits all approach um and I, and I think really i've come round to after 20 years of more than 20 years of tinkering with my diet and things just very simple thing of like you know eating a balanced diet across a broad range of foods sticking with whole foods not eating too much you know um just simple it's funny as you kind of quite often begin with all of this complicated stuff and you get fascinated and lost in the weeds with all this there and then it's quite a common story you know to come out the end of that with some very very simple thing what people have known forever basically you know yeah um yeah. at the end of it and it's it's quite quite a humble humbling position to have landed at really yeah and yeah. the i think the other thing is is really noticing what works for you as in how do you feel because i mm, i know that yeah. if i even if i have rice um which is supposedly healthy i feel really hungry about two hours later yeah and then i wake up feeling really hungry and it's not hunger there's something that my body doesn't like about it that it just doesn't do it doesn't, it's almost like that the fit is not very good yeah whereas if whereas if i have something like sweet potato or like steamed vegetables with some like a like an oily or fatty like if i make my own at the moment i've got a bit of a thing about making my own homemade um tartare sauce fit that on there and i'm great and i'll, I'll wake up feeling awake and sometimes mm. you know if i've had more indulgent food or things like 
pasta or something like that the next morning i'll wake up and i'll feel really tired and so it's like it's it's like those kind of things like doing your own discovery and so if i want to feel awake and on the case and like have have good energy then there's there's things that i don't eat and even when i'm at vital detox i don't want any carb kind of grainy thing at lunchtime because otherwise i'll be asleep in my sessions in the afternoon which is apparently not allowed (laughs) yeah well um that that exact same thing happened for me i got to a certain point where i would just rather than focusing on what these people were telling me to eat yeah i would actually tune into my own body i would eat something and then i'd see how i felt and then if i felt good i knew that was you know something that worked and if and and if i felt bad then you know then i would uh, act you know change course but but also i would sometimes when I would know how a food is going to make me feel, I would say, right, I know how this food's going to make me feel. And sometimes I will choose to eat something that is going to get, make me feel good in the short term, but I know I'm going to feel, but I know I'm going to pay for it later. Um, Because life is not all about optimizing everything to a hundred percent. You know, there is such a thing as just eating some of that, you know chocolate the 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 really trash you know trashy chocolate that that you get from a a garage or something you know um and just loving the kind of wallowing in that just the pure sensual pleasure of it and saying well i've you know i'm gonna pay i'll pay the price for that because right now that's okay yeah Um, i quite like the that the 80 20 rule you know of like as long as you're sort of doing 80 percent on target you can afford 20% to yeah. fall by the wayside. Yeah. And, it, and it's great being able to do birthdays and, and uh, it, I was in my fifties before I was actually had cake in the bath. I didn't, I didn't realize mm. that you could do that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree about being able to, it's like if your if your baseline is good, then you, you can have those, you know, some things that you might not, you, you know, like you say, they give you it, a short-term pleasure but long-term not and I think the other thing actually that's really I was just want to say about vital detox is and this is my experience as well when I do detoxes because I try and do one or two a year so like a little mini fast for three or five days and when you come out the other side you have a very clean system which then means you can do that kind of testing so at the moment I've, I've actually just recently done one so I I still haven't had any, um, I haven't had any dairy. I haven't had any, I've had no sugar. I've had no, um, no meat or fish or anything like that. So I'm, I kind of like, I'm, I'm curious to add some things in to see, you know, I'm going to have eggs, see how am I going to do on eggs and stuff. Um, so it's, it's, it helps if you've got a clean system, if you're going to do that kind of testing and, uh, and and I, I sometimes when people say you know what kind of diet do you have I say I'm I'm an opportunarian, which means it depends on what's on offer, um, what I'll choose. Yeah, but this might not be sort of chronological, but I, I I would like to talk about your work with Craig Hamilton, and I mean and, and actually maybe before we get into that because you came across Craig Hamilton through. Uh, you know, the integral work and work of Ken Wilber. I mean, how, how did you get into integral stuff in the first place? 
and that's how um, we met you know yes. a, around that so how did that happen yeah um before um so i moved i moved down to the southwest of england um about uh, in fact 20 years ago this year and just before that um a friend of mine's boyfriend had a ken wilbur book and i kind of i liked the look of it and it was like it was like short essays i thought okay i'm going to read some of this and i had it on my shelf for a really long time and didn't read it i think i might have like flicked through it and thought oh i'll, I'll read that later um and um, and then in about um, 2002, I was a trustee of the school where my son, he was at a Steiner school. And, um, and one of the other trustees that I met told me about Ken Wilber's The Theory of Everything. And that, so that was when I got introduced to Ken Wilber's work. And I really, I really loved it. I just, to me, it kind of just made sense of everything. I was just like, oh, oh yeah, amazing, 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 brilliant. Um, and then I, and I think I was disappointed that not everybody was as enthusiastic as I was when I suggested they read the book. Um, and then I think, I can't remember what year it was, maybe it was 2007 when you and I met and we, and we, there was a Southwest integral group and, um, and it was, it was wonderful to find other people who were thinking along the same lines. And I think probably around the same time. So maybe maybe that was about the same time i remember really clearly listening to some things so i, I would listen because they had something called integral naked which was yeah. where they were doing all of the podcasting and talks and different offerings and so i was i was subscribed to that and i um and i listened to in fact i think it was um enlightened next the um what was the what was the book? Uh, not the book, the magazine. What is Enlightenment? What yeah. is Enlightenment magazine? And then maybe conversations between Andrew Cohen and Ken Wilber, the Guru and the Pandit. And um, and so I I I was interested in Andrew Cohen's work, and 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 so I was interested in Andrew's work before I met Craig's work. And um, and I did a silent retreat actually in in Italy with Andrew Cohen. And but it was really when I read Craig's. Um, website where it said you know you're an evolutionary because you're interested in evolution and the cosmos and you know you're seeing the way the world is and you want to make a difference and 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 like every almost every line I was going yes that's who I am that's mm. what you know it's like finally I'd found my tribe and that was what was really exciting about um, discovering the integral world and then and also Craig Hamilton's work was yeah yeah well Andrew Cohen is kind of a disgraced guru. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think I can endorse him as a uh, as a guru, as a, a teacher in that sense. <clears throat> um, but the Enlightened Next organization he built around him uh, was really powerful. Yeah, and I think also you know a lot of his teaching was yeah. very powerful too. Um, but as a, as a human being, uh, a, a someone who you can put your trust in uh, to, you know, do you no harm, uh, I don't think he's the guy. <laughs> I think, uh, <clears throat> but so Craig Hamilton left Enlightened Next at some point, and I don't, you know, we don't need to go into the story there, but I mean, there was a re must have been a reason why he was unhappy with that as a container. He went off and started doing his own thing. 
um, but still very much based around this uh, evolutionary enlightenment yeah. um, stuff. So what, but for someone who doesn't know what evolutionary spirituality is, but how could you summarize that? What, what bring, what, what differentiates it from say tr- a traditional form of, uh, you know, Buddhism or, christianity or that kind of thing well i i I think i think the most important thing is the idea that so that that like like two ideas together one is that there is a trajectory of evolution so everything is evolving which and by evolving it means that that it's becoming more and more complex more integrated um so like but but like but there's a sort of simplicity on the far side of complexity as well there's a there's a there's a um a sense of things getting better i suppose really Thing, things 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 are heading in a particular direction where um they they well, i can't really i can't really describe it actually they they're getting better and at the same time as an evolutionary in terms of your spirituality it means you're involved in that process of evolving and as in fact there's a sufi way of saying it which is as god discovers him herself or as you discover yourself so god do- discovers him herself there's a, there's a there's a sense that you're a part of the evolution of the divine because you're you're part of it and if if it's consciousness and you're discovering yourself as that consciousness then you being that in the material world and making a difference helps to evolve the trajectory of where you know where we're at that's that's my understanding i don't know if you have anything to add um well i think what i might add is that the that kind of peace that surpasses all understanding the uh, formless awareness that we were talking about earlier, that is not an evolving part of anything. And uh, that that's been a very central part to a lot of meditation practices is kind of getting you to that place. But the, uh, you know, if we were to call that the formless, that uh, is not, really only does the present moment and and never changes and that within form uh form is always changing and flowing and you start to notice that through doing a meditation practice that is the constant flux and flow but it's not but what the evolutionary perspective brings to it is, it is it's not just a flow that's just kind of moving around uh it's it aimlessly it's actually going somewhere um and has some kind of arrow to it uh what's it um steve mcintosh wrote a book yeah the evolution evolution's arrow and that there's there's a kind of direction to it along what you were describing towards more wholeness inclusivity uh expansiveness um complexity uh greater goodness truth and beauty yeah and um yeah so that you know a lot of the spiritual traditions that have come before have come out of of cultures that have a cyclical view of history 
um, of just kind of perpetually going round and round. And the evolutionary thing is is a little bit more of a um, you know a, a journey, a, a sort of linear. Well, linear is not the very good way. You know, maybe a spiral, spiral or something, but but at least some kind of direction to yeah. it that we can actually intuit. Um, and, and I think one of the things that comes with it is a realization that, well, it's a kind of progressive force that, that, that there's, you know, uh, that there's a sweet spot between progressiveness and conservation. Um, you know, too much, all progression without any conservation is just utter chaos and all conservation without any progression is just death in stagnation. So, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a sweet spot. It's not all about just leaning endlessly into this ever expansive, ever expanding progressive force and letting go of everything that's come before. Yeah, that, that there's. A, I like the idea of the spiral because it has like an embrace. It's like you're including, embracing, and transcending, as Ken says. You know, mm. each previous level as as you know as we ascend in this in the spiral. There's a, there's a yeah. sense of including, and and I think the other thing about Craig's work is his um, the the practices of direct awakening are there they're there so that his 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 um, premise is that we can practice what it is to be awake so in each moment what are the qualities of awakening like stillness um, uh, paying, being a, being present being attentive not having any you know, like not having any fixed ideas of how things should be, you know, like this sense of not knowing or beginner's mind in the Zen tradition that, that, you know, you can practice those positions, if you like, so that you, you, you're practicing direct awakening and that, and so that, 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 that's that his, his, the body of his work is that you can practice what it's like to be awake in any moment. And it's all, and it's accessible in any moment, which is one of the things that I really love. It's like, you don't have to meditate for decades in order to access it because it is available. And, and, and I think there's a sense of, and I think this is true of everything that I understand about spiritual practice and spiritual development is it's a great undoing. It's not something we have to find or, you know, we have to become, we don't have to effort to become it. We're already that. And that we would, what we're really doing is just getting all the other crap out of the way of what's, what's, you know, hidden it from ourselves. Mm. Yeah. So, <clears throat> um, um, so it's the, the kind of fundamental premise upon which it's all, all of this is built this spiritual practice is that um there is nothing other than the ultimate supreme mysterious divine being um all doing all you know not doing anything in the sense of the formless awareness uh, that utter transcendence radical freeness uh, but and, and also in the um, in every, all the whole world of form, everything, you know, nature. So mother nature might be a, a more accessible term for that. And that you don't make mother nature happen. You know, she is. Um, it's a given. And 
and her evolutionary process is a given too. Um, and, and then also that the, the sort of formless awareness is a given. It's, you don't make it happen. That it's just, so the practice becomes more noticing who and what you already are and what all of this already is. Um, and, and so you're not, you're not kind of making something happen. You're actually noticing what is already the case. It's just a, it's a fact. And, then, and in that sense, it becomes an effortless practice uh, in, the, in the sense of stripping back all of, all of those things you, you might want to try and create to put onto it. Um, mm. But at the same time, that's not to say that this journey doesn't involve enormous amounts of effort at some time you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's a, I mean, you know, kind of a central theme in a lot of this stuff is embracing paradox. You know, the paradox is just baked into life and, um, you know, you kind of give up making these total, totalizing statements without simultaneously bringing in the opposite because it's, they're both true. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I think, you know, having that as a the, the foundation, it's it's a bit, it's like a sort of non-dual tantric approach, really. Uh, you know, to put it in that historical framework. Um, but yeah, what 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 this evolutionary thing is adding to that non-dual tantric approach is the evolutionary uh, unfolding picked part of it, because the original non-dual tantra was a sort of cyclical thing. Um, having that direct awakening thing is is for me i think really key to have that right at the outset of one spiritual practice because you don't know when you're going to die or you don't know when our planet or planet's going to be blown up by whatever asteroid you know it's you you can't you can't say, right, oh, you know, in, in 30 years time, I'm going to get this. There's not time for that. Yeah. So you, you need, it's really important to have that now. And then the 30 year journey is the actual art of being that. It, it reminds me of nice. uh, just, um, just one more thing. Oh, we, we did a fermenting vegetables workshop here at my house uh, a few years back. Um, something I'm, I'm really keen on fermenting vegetables, talking about gut health, <laughs> you know, it's uh, something I, th I think is brilliant. So she, came, she, this lady, she came down from London, you know, to, to show us this group of people, you know, uh, how to do this. She cut out some vegetables, popped it in a kiln a jar, filled up with water, put in some salt, shut it and said, there you go. That's it. It took the whole thing took five, less than five, you know, two minutes. And then there was another two hours of the workshop where we went into the art of fermenting vegetables. You know, what, so, okay, you, so you, now you know how to ferment vegetables. You just chuck it in there and, you know, it's that simple. But then there's so much more to it, you know, beyond that. And that's sort of a bit like the, um, you, does that make any sense, that, yeah. that analogy there? Yeah, that's great. That's really cool. And, and in fact, the... Um one of the things we used to do on Craig's courses was we used to do something called co-meditation 
where we would meditate in groups online over the internet and we would just be invited to speak about our experience so not like my foot's itching but just what we were noticing in our practice and i think that probably more than anything of all my spiritual practice through my whole life convinced me because we were all describing the same place not that mm. it's a place but we were describing the same experience and that was that was utterly unmissable that at the heart of me is the heart of you is the heart of everybody and and i used i used to try and like work out how could you how could you show it how could you explain it because it feels like there's a there's a we we see the world like outside of ourselves whereas i feel like we're all joined like at, in the heart of ourselves so a bit like um a flower you know like or, or a pom-pom is kind of like joined in the middle and the little bits splay out I, I feel like that's actually what reality is really like whereas it looks like it's the other way around we all feel like we're separate and we're all doing our own thing but actually we're all, all joined in our you know at that level of of the non the non-manifest that is our that is our true nature and and like you said i really like what you said about the art of being that is the next 30 years of work is bringing what you know the um i think it's the zen tradition where they talk about the the 10 ox pictures Top, yeah, right? ox herding pictures oh, yeah. yeah and so it, the return to the marketplace which again um thomas hubel another spiritual teacher who i really like his work um he talks about returning to the marketplace so it's one art, one thing to kind of know your true nature and then another to be living it in the world and as mm. that and one mistake um that is quite common along a part of a meditation practice is to get to that point where you realize your own identity as formless awareness and then that's it, it there's something so so compelling about that real that recognition that it can just suck you in and take you away from everything you know the world of form and uh you know it's, it's something i feel very passionate about because in it to a certain extent that happened to me um and uh you know there's there's lots of people that uh, out there in, in the the spiritual marketplace promoting this idea that that's the essence of it all you know and um it's this kind of uh transcendentalist <clears throat> approach of just getting up and out um <clears throat> and then so all of the things we've talked about in this conversation to do with five rhythms and uh, nutrition and all that kind of stuff is just complete nonsense from that perspective yeah. um but then you know well the the, the some of the more compl complicated and nuanced and often le historically later uh, de uh developments in some of these religious traditions said oh no, no that's not the end of the picture you know then there's this kind of like rebounding in to life and then suddenly nutrition is really important because it's divine uh and dance really is and relation interpersonal relationships are the way that 
this divine supreme being knows itself you know through like what we're doing now you know we are that's happening now between us um and also anyone who might be watching this or listening you know it's uh and it i think it's really important to keep flagging that um because out there will be you can get these conflicting views of this this sort of transcendentalist type of, uh, of teachings coming in in one direction and then the more imminent you know embodied a bit more you know if i was to gender it just for the sake of it you know feminine goddess type things coming in on the other side you know the importance of nature and embodiment and and, and all of that and then it can feel like they're these two forces are fighting inside you and then this integrate what's so amazing about this integrating impulse you know and this integral theory or whatever is that suddenly you realize there's room for both of those they're both true yeah and it's a paradox and you know god and goddess are separate we are separate from god and we are separate from goddesses as little individuals but also god and goddess are one being and we are also that one being we are also god and goddess and it's it seems like a mess when you describe it like that uh, and it, it conceptually it is actually kind of a mess because it's it's about something deeper than that um yeah. and and i think uh yeah you know it's it, it it it's it's quite tricky when you can't when all of these things seem to be competing and it feels like it's tearing you apart and it's there's it's a glorious moment when you realize you don't have to choose one or the other <laughs> because it's all it's all true yeah mm. yeah beautiful um so you have we not caught um did you want to talk about course and miracles or a bit more about thomas hubel or so what you know what else would you like to talk about um, given we're kind of running out of time a, yeah. a little bit because um, the, well the only thing i sort of segue in with course and miracles is they, they mm. it talks a lot about this holy instant and and again that suggests that you don't have to do anything complicated or long term in order to discover your true nature and uh, and so and in fact funnily enough i think the course of miracles is is a teaching that has humor in it, it it's, it's, it's some some people don't really like the language if you come from a christian tradition it can be off-putting or it can be reassuring because it has a sort of and the pages have a sort of biblical feel but um uh it's it is one of those things that that people if they get on with it they often really love it and are devoted to it and uh so yeah and in fact, funny enough, I was just thinking about another, uh, because I did have A Course in Miracles on my shelf for quite a long time before I read it. But I think that's true of quite a few books as well. And, um, and Deepak Chopra was another very early teacher of mine as well, as in I had tapes, like cassette tapes with Deepak Chopra on. So that kind of takes it back a bit. Mm. Um, and um, yeah, and, and I really love Thomas Hubel's work. Thomas Hubel, to me, is very integral uh, because he especially his work on trauma because a lot of spiritual teachers tend to leave trauma aside and just get you to focus on your spiritual practice and 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 your meditation and what's going on and thomas hubel is 
his work is quite embodied. So it'll go into your body and it'll include your trauma. And, and the way he trains his students is so that they can um, facilitate, you know, releasing some of that um, old material. And uh, yeah, I, th- I, li- I like what he does. I can understand why <clears throat> uh, different teachers have, deci- have chosen not to touch trauma. Because, yes. uh, you know, I mean, if you, if you awaken the wrong type of trauma in a person and yes. you don't have the skills to deal with that as a facilitator or teacher, you know, yeah. that is um, very yeah. irresponsible. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I think one of the reasons why, why um, Thomas does is because he does have, you know, pre-COVID days, groups who would meet together and would work together and build triads where you would process with each other. And um, so there's a, there's a, um, what do they call it? Uh, like a safety, there's safety. Yeah. Um, so maybe the last thing we could talk about is, um, I know you've had uh, an evolutionary buddy. Um, <laughs> along the the way with with the Craig Hamilton work so what you know what's that been like Uh, I mean so you've been there's a community of people who practice this evolutionary enlightenment stuff which you you're involved in I think you're a you you've kind of uh you're you you've you've gone up the hierarchy somehow and you I'm, you I'm, kinda... a, I'm a course assistant for Craig. Yeah. So that, so that, that means that on all of his online offerings, um, where they're like discussion threads and stuff like that, I can, I can answer and point people towards different parts of Craig's yeah. historical work and, and have, I have some sort of, uh, you know, allowance about my own in, little bit of input occasionally as well. Yeah. Well, that's good. It's, it's nice to know that they allow that you know that teaching system allows people to have their own input rather than always do the party line yeah um, and what, what was really funny actually because somebody asked him a question about forgiveness and he just said oh well i just refer to the world expert in forgiveness and oh, just told them about my book so <laughs> we'll have to do we'll have to do a whole separate episode on forgiveness, on forgiveness but would, just yeah for anyone who's listening barbara has written the book on forgiveness which i think we'll, we'll have to do a whole separate episode on that because we haven't got time for that and um, but I, i'm just interested so you know you've got this wider community but you've also been encouraged to team up with a person that you feel close to uh, and have this you know this buddy thing along you know so you know along the years of practice you've you've had this kind of individual friend that you've got done this journey with i love that so perhaps you could talk a bit about how that's been different to just being part of a wider community um well in fact funnily enough i'm still part of a practice circle so there's four of us who still meet once a month and we do a meditation together and then we we do um actually do something called lectio divina i don't know if you know that that's a, a spiritual practice where you read text but you read it four times over. Oh, okay. It's, it's very yeah, cool. Yeah. I'll, 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 it's, it's, it's good fun. Um, so, but, but one of those is, a, is an evolutionary partner. And then also um, my friend Nick, is, we still meet periodically and have that evolution. And there's also another friend, uh, Marilyn, and we meet once a month and 
um, and she she's done Craig's work and Thomas Hubel's work as well. And mm. so what's what's wonderful about that is that you're conscious and your conversations are about you know what's how how are you with your practice and how are you evolving and and also to witness each other's lives over over years with with that context so it's it's not really about having a good moan about how awful life is or you know what's going on it's much more about you know where am i at with my practice and where am i at with uh, you know my evolution mm. yeah and and the same with you really in some ways we you know that we that's kind of primarily our apart from once we've got past the family we're on to yeah how, yeah how, sure how's god with you ralph yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and i i think um you know one of the great things with working with other people is they see things about you that you don't and you know we've all got blind spots and if you try to do this on your own you will never see those blind spots obviously yeah um and if you are someone who's committed to expanding in all areas of your life um you're not going to expand into areas you don't even know exist <laughs> you know, if you're just doing it on your own yeah, yeah. it's true and in, in fact that's been one of the blessings of working on the vital detox team as well is that there's a there's a core team of seven of us and we have um our intention as a as a as a business as a company is to be a deliberately deve developmental organization which means we are conscious of our own evolution and our own pr practice and our own you know well-being individually and as a team and so we um we play the transformation game together i don't know if you know that game it um, came from Findhorn. oh we should play one time mm. it's very good so and and it's it, so we have a an agreement about whether or not we can give each other feedback so we have like a way of indicating how open are you to feedback and you kind of indicate how open you are um, to getting feedback on on exactly those blind spots, and it is it is quite hilarious how resistant we are to knowing anything about our egos. I think that was one of the things I appreciated about the um, Craig Hamilton and, and Enlightened Next stuff was that you were kind of encouraged to, in a group, provoke people to develop you know, or get over limitations. And I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that went wrong with Enlightened Next was there was too much of that provocation, you know, uh, and not enough of that kind of safety, you know, that nice cotton wool thing that it, it, it was, it was, um, yeah. But there's something really profound and, and so many, so much of our uh, relationships in life are, based around this thing of i won't call you on your stuff if you don't call me on the mic it's like on mine it's like a truce <laughs> um True. but then you know when you you uh, have some evolutionary buddies or you're in some community or group where people want to you've got you're giving each other permission to call you out call each other out on their stuff yeah. um you know, with some kind of guidelines and, you know, so there's no, we're not encouraging people to abuse each other. Um, but, you know, there's quite a lot of courage to enter into that relationship with people. Yeah. Uh, and it's also, it's a nuanced thing. It's subtle. I mean, you, you know, some of the 
things that have gone wrong is when people have been too brutish about that. You know, they haven't been, there hasn't been the sensitivity, but then too much sensitivity means no evolution. You know, it's, there's, again, there's a sweet spot and yeah. it's a paradox. Yeah. And I, and I think, I mean, as far as I understand in, in Ken Wilber's work, there's, there's a point at which you want to get the feedback rather yeah. than just defending it that you actually do invite it or you or you try and you know receive it in the spirit in which it's offered you know rather yeah. than as a personal attack or affront you see it as oh okay so this is something i'm not seeing about my own ego yeah and i think probably probably that that transition happens when you a have gone beyond your ego you know you've actually had enough experience of trans your transpersonal identity to not worry about your ego uh you know being offended or threatened but then also on the other side of it you've also done enough psychological psychotherapy and psychological work to have built a strong enough sense of self so you have that actual self-esteem um you know that, that there's a so there's the invulnerability of not having an ego but also the invulnerability from having a strong ego again it's the paradox thing um but you know if you had a if you hadn't quite experienced going beyond your ego limitations uh, and and you also hadn't built up a strong sense of self uh this could really be not uh this could, this could be a bad way to go uh you know so wouldn't necessarily recommend it to someone who hasn't done that first perhaps i don't know i mean what what do you think well when when you say sen sense of self do you mean the divine self no 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 just just the kind of bog standard uh someone with a who really you know f feel sure about themselves you know that the kind of self-esteem a strong sense a strong ego you know in the in a in the, in the most positive sense of that right. that word that one might develop through psychotherapy or something like that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it can, it depends on what you mean by ego actually, doesn't it? Because oh, I know to evolve the... beyond the ego. Yeah. But not okay. that ego. I know. <laughs> yeah. I think it, 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 the terminology does get a bit weird because I know in Craig Hamilton's work, ego, he kind of uses in that uh, yeah. negative sense of, of the word. Yeah. Um, Rather than the psychotherapeutic version. Yeah. 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 Is there anything we you feel has been left unsaid? I mean, obviously, there's so much more we could talk yeah, about. And we might we might do another. Well, we definitely do another session on forgiveness. But yeah. you know, given the contact container of this conversation, yeah, no, it's I've really enjoyed it. It's it's, it's really interesting, isn't it, to think about and to talk about your trajectory through your and, and see your evolution. In fact, I've always been interested in just can I can I track it through my songs or can I track it through my journals or you know and always interested to see how there's there's there it's it's like i think i've realized things and then i read them back in my diary and go oh well i realized that you know 10 years ago or something <laughs> and, and it is that sense of there being a spiral but um yeah mm. no it's been great and and always a joy to talk to you yeah you too yeah. so where where can people find out more about you or anything you care about yeah. uh so the be the best place is to go to my forgiveness made easy dot co dot uk dot co dot uk uh website so that's the book website it's all my books available on amazon and um 
And then also I have a coaching site, if you're interested in doing coaching, um, which is called evolutionarycoaching.co.uk. And if you want to know about my music, that's barbarajhunt.com. And if you want to know about Vital Detox, that's vitaldetox.com. And then also I do run another program with some uh, two American friends who come through Craig's program called Leading Beyond Ego, which is uh, for leaders. So that's called leadingbeyondego.com. So that's wow, enough a lot. websites, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Barbara. Um, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person now yeah. that uh, coronavirus lockdown is kind of over for the moment. Yeah. You know, we can uh, get out and about and uh, yeah. hopefully we'll come up your way and see you soon. Thanks. I really right. enjoyed it. Lots of love, Barbara. Yeah, you too. Take care. Bye. Thank you.